it seems like the big challenge that we face now is informing Americans of these simple realities, that we have a long history with Islam in this country, and that it's been a collaborative and cooperative history. I mean, there have been conflicts at times, of course. But, uh, you know, how do we do that? I, 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 and, and particularly, how do we do that within the Republican Party, where, you know, anti-Islamic uh, rhetoric is not only not frowned on, it's actually, in many cases, encouraged and, and uh, repeated? Well, you know, I mean, part of what we do, I think, is we teach a real history of Islam and Muslims in the United States. And we understand that if we're looking at blueprints for an exceptional nation, then Muslims were, and their civil rights were included and protected since the founding. That's a piece of information that's not usually taught as part of our history. But it's absolutely true. listening to the liquid flannel podcast thanks for tuning in i am chuck williams joining me in omaha is brendan williams brendan what's up man hey how's it going i'm excited for this episode excellent excellent and joining us in arlington texas as usual is the great matthew hodges matt how you doing man hey everybody really glad to be here totally absolutely and as usual we're bringing the flannel nation terrific guests all the time and this week is no exception uh, matt why don't you introduce this guest that we've got for the show today yeah absolutely um yeah so he's a human rights attorney out of dc he's written two books including the wrong kind of muslim and extremist a response a response to your builders and terrorists everywhere. Uh, he just had a piece published in the Washington Post, and we're delighted to welcome Kasim Rashid to the show. Kasim, thanks for joining us. Guys, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. And you all may know him on Twitter as Muslim IQ, right? At Muslim IQ, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's exactly Excellent. right. Perfect. Yeah, which is uh, which is where we discovered you first of all doing amazing work. Um, I mean, you're going viral, of, baby. The kind of outreach work that. Uh, frightened middle Americans ask, like, where are the good Muslims uh, when when something bad happens? So, I mean, you're actually out there on the front lines doing that work. It's it's great. It's it's remarkable what uh, social media has allowed people to do. I mean, you can literally win a presidential election on social media nowadays, which is kind of crazy That's... to think about, right? <laughs> and right. for the foreseeable Creepily future. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially with Russia, you know, teaming up to make sure these elections are secure. But that's an issue for another day. <laughs> Stay on top. <laughs> that's right. Right. So, you know, I think uh, we'll definitely want to go into uh, that op-ed piece that you wrote for the Washington Post. And in addition to um, a couple other articles and the experience that Brendan and I had this weekend at um, the Tri-Faith Community Center, which was opening up the uh, American Muslim right. Institute Prayer Center and Mosque. So, um, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about, so I'm not going to keep you holding up here. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Inside the American Muslim Institute, the chatter of excited conversations fills Omaha's newest mosque and cultural center. I think Omaha's the perfect place for this. It's just such a wonderful curious community you know as far as that, those conversations this is what uh, the city is all about is about taking something and spreading it and making it better 
to share what they are all about, Kayati says they opened their doors to the community. Barefoot Christians and Jews talk with the mosque's imam, a Muslim leader. Omaha opened their arms to welcome their new neighbors. Three times as many people than they expected showed up to say hello. This turnout uh, make me uh, feel like I'm a true U.S. citizen. Yeah, so Kasim, you totally threw us this curveball. You know, I had all of my opposition prep ready to go, all these gotcha questions, and then <laughs> right. you uh, went and published this amazing Washington Post article, this this opinion piece, <laughs> uh, over the weekend, and just completely blew um, everything that I was I was going to try to spring on you. But um, you published. Um, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, so you, you published this piece called Jihad is Not a Dirty Word, um, responding to the backlash against Linda Sarsour um, and a lecture that she gave about how, you know, what we need is, is a, a jihad of peace. And I was hoping that you could, you could speak a little bit to what she meant by that and what you were uh, trying to communicate to people in this op-ed. So, you know, I think it's beyond comical, it's ludicrous that people made an issue out of Linda's uh, remarks on jihad. You know, when you read the transcript, or when you listen to the speech, she prefaces her statement by saying that somebody asked the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, peace be upon him, what is the best jihad? And he said that the best jihad is to speak truth, a truthful word to a tyrant. And she said that, I hope that our struggle to resist against the white supremacy, against the fascism, that that is seen as that jihad, that truthful word. And so you've got these right-wing nutjobs, these Islamophobes, hearing the J word and suddenly having a panic attack and trying to demonize her. Mm-hmm. You know, I tweeted the other day that the most frightening thing to Islamophobes and extremists are Muslim women. Um, and frankly, as, as I'm married to a Muslim woman, they're pretty scary to me as well because you don't want to you don't want to <laughs> right. take them off. Let me just be honest with you on that, right? They're you know you know Islam right. has given women such empowerment uh, as equal human beings. You know, people troll me all the time with these gotcha questions. How can you call yourself a women's rights activist if you're a Muslim? My response to them is: Look, 1,400 years ago, the Prophet of Islam said that men and women are equal. Today, in 2017, America still hasn't ratified the Equal Rights Amendment Act. So, you know, right. you can say all you want right. about, uh, about your myths about what Islam teaches, but the reality is, you know, you want to look at the black letter of the law, Islam has given women rights that America still hasn't given women. And, and people try to conflate that by saying, well, look at the treatment of, of women in Muslim-majority countries and expecting me to defend that. And... I'm a women's rights activist because I'm condemning that. I'm trying to fight for their rights. I'm trying to educate Muslims just as much mm-hmm. as I'm trying to educate non-Muslims that abuse of women is, is wrong. And I call that struggle a jihad as well, that this jihad for basic human rights and basic dignity. You know, this, this word jihad is a powerful word because it means a struggle for self-improvement. We're trying to combat racism. That's mm-hmm. jihad. We're trying to combat cancer, obesity, heart disease, drug addiction, alcoholism. These are all forms of jihad to improve society and improve humanity. So when I see these right-wing nutjobs going crazy over this word, uh, it reminds me that there's a lot of work we have left to do. uh, And incidentally, that struggle is also a jihad. So we got 
We got a lot of jihad to yeah. do here for peace and reputation. <laughs> well, that was a great jihad in the Washington Post, you know. I mean, that was a struggle. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the education thing, uh, it's one of those things where I feel like people have to have that direct experience with it. You know, if, if I'm just like, well, you know, I took yeah. world religions class in undergrad, and you are so wrong about this. I mean, people are immediately going to shut off to that, but it has to become something real to them in a non-abstract form so absolutely yeah. and, and you know I, this whole cherry picking culture that we've we've kind of fallen into with wikipedia mm -hmm. and google scholarship is ridiculous <laughs> i mean i think voltaire said it that uh i think it's voltaire i could be wrong but the quote is that uh give me six sentences written by any man and i shall have him hanged um, <laughs> right. that, you know? And, and so, you know, I see these, these, these Islamophobes cherry pick from the Quran, cherry pick from the Hadith. And, you know, here Linda gave this great lecture and they're cherry picking from a lecture here in 2017. And, mm -hmm. and then they act like they're scholars because they can cherry pick some verse of the Quran. And, you know, my simple, my simple request to people is for the love of God, read a book. Like put down right. Wikipedia, put down Google Scholarship and just read a physical book for once. And, and <laughs> you know, let's have a conversation based on that. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of these people that come at me with with this cherry pick nonsense, I just ignore because it tells me they're not they're not interested in actual education. They're in, they're interested in bickering and fighting like children. And, uh, right, right. and they can and there's plenty of you know I can bring my eight year old son if he wants to bicker with him. Um, but <laughs> right. I don't I don't have time for that unfortunately. Yeah, they've made up their mind already, and they want to find any little any little chink in your arm. They they want to put you on the defensive with with statements that you didn't make and right. don't represent, but then you end up having to defend. And we see that on men's lib a lot, where people say like, "Well, what about this terrible feminist who said this thing?" It's yeah. like Wait, we've never claimed to stand for that. Yeah, what and about Chuck, it? Yeah. You and I. Yeah, Chuck, you and I were talking about this with D Black a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's come up on the show in the past. This this effort, this intellectual and emotional work that has to be done by minorities in order to educate people, and it seems like that's mm. incredibly unfair. You know, like you, the the people who are are put upon, the people who are being oppressed, end up having to do extra work. Uh, in addition to right. their oppression, to like bring people around to the point of view that that I shouldn't be oppressed, right? That they should be treated equal. It's almost like you have to like make the case, the argument for your equality, where for everyone else it's just inherently, you know, instilled when you're born type of thing. But at the same time, I mean, that's how it feels, I guess, as a, as you know, a person of color in Omaha, in terms of just trying to almost spending a lifetime feeling like I have to go out of my way to not be perceived as a threat by, you know, people, white right. people, you know. Well, you have to be extra nice so that they don't just go like, well, all black people are jerks. Right. Because that guy didn't hold the door for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I mean, so in a sense, is there is that kind of, I mean, is there respectability politics like that in terms of a balancing act for um, how how am I trying to say this? Educating about Islam, um, Kasim, and not feeling like you're going out of your way to not be the scary boogeyman that people you know might perceive. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I tell the story. Um, I was 19 when 9/11 happened. 
Um, 19 years old, I was a sophomore in college. I was on the cross country team. Um, I had this long, like, like shaggy hair. It was amazing. It was luscious hair. It was like the most amazing hair you've ever seen. <laughs> right. And I, Fabio and, and, and style. We had a tradition on the cross country team that uh, from the first day of the season to the national championships, you wouldn't shave. So, so I had, I had, I had a beard like my man uh, over here does, right? And, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so think about this, right? 9-11 happens. You're a 19 year old brown Muslim kid with long hair and a shaggy beard, right? Oh yeah. In the next not a good two look. years, I kid you not. <laughs> in the next two years, I was pulled over without a ticket for 70 times. Yeah. Over yeah. 70 times without a ticket. They gave me. I, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in my life. I can't tell you how many breathalyzers I took. Wow. Um, I, I've never. Yeah. I've never smoked a drug in my life. I can't tell you how many times it made me prove that I wasn't on drugs or some garbage like that. So yeah. You know. You know, you, you walk into an airplane and people suddenly clutch their children like I'm going to steal them and run away or something, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so for me, that was also a time of uh, great discovery on, you know, what it, it is I actually believe. Like, okay, I'm a Muslim by name, but what does that actually mean? And I belong to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Well, what does that mean, right? And, and so you have all these questions and things swirling around. And I was fortunate, I am fortunate to have parents who um, wouldn't let me settle for just believing what I was told or what I was raised to believe. And so when I would ask them these difficult questions, you know, my dad would be like a stone wall. Uh, he'd be like, you know, that's a really good question. You should probably figure that out. And it's frustrating Thanks, and dad. aggravating when you're 19, 20, 21 years old. But, um, but that, that soul searching and that identity is, is what helps you uh, understand what you believe, know what you believe and why you believe it. And so this, this long answer to get to your, your specific question is you're right. You know, there is a sense of awareness that if I respond to this guy in an angry manner, which may be totally justified, um, it's going to come off as, oh, that's just the angry brown Muslim, um, you know, that's their nature up, exactly, coming out, yeah. living up to whatever we've seen on the media. You know, somebody sends me a death mm -hmm. threat. You know, if I respond angrily or with vulgarity, they're going to say, well, you know, that's just that's just who they are. You shouldn't, you know, he's going to do something crazy now. Um, if somebody says something about mm. my my children, which is probably the most painful thing, right? When people attack your children. Um, and if I respond in an aggressive manner, it's, it's so, you know, what I've done is I've coined a phrase called collateral education. When I respond to somebody, <laughs> um, even if they're not going to pay attention, I know that there are thousands of people watching and they're going to learn from it. Mm -hmm. and, and that for me is the most rewarding part. I mean, even today I, I got nice. an email from this young woman, uh, African-American woman, who uh, literally said that uh, she was so sick and tired of the hypocrisy that she's seen among people of faith. Uh, she was raised in a very uh, religiously conservative environment. I won't mention the religion because I don't think that religion endorses hypocrisy. But right. she said that she had uh, left religion altogether and she was on the brink of committing suicide. Um, but seeing these examples of, of me interacting with people, and I'm not saying this to, to toot my own horn, I'm just, I'm just giving an example of how powerful <laughs> sure. I think it is when you respond with compassion. Seeing that mm -hmm. example of somebody who is devout in his faith but also committed a service to humanity uh, she said it literally walked her back from the ledge. And I had a moment where I was nearly in tears just reading this email because yeah. it just reminds me how important it is to remember the humanity in all of us, whether you're black, you're white, 
whether you're LGBT, whoever you are, whether I agree with you or your lifestyle or not, you're still a human being and I need to respect you and treat you as an equal human being. And so, and so that's the message I bring to my interactions. And I fail a lot, um, but I, I try to keep that at the forefront. And, and I think that's really where, where life is, is worth living, in, in that sweet spot right there. Well, and that's that's amazing work that you do too. You know, I've been following you on Twitter for probably close to a year at this point, and I've seen the vitriol and just the ridiculously hateful, ignorant opinions that get thrown at you all the time. But those always tend to float to the bottom because when you come back with, if somebody says something like, you know, America doesn't want Muslims here, and you tweet something like, I bet I can prove you wrong. Hey, retweet this if you're okay with Muslims being here. You get this yeah. phenomenal response, and almost all of the replies, except for the ones that have floated to the bottom, are positive and saying, you know, thank you so much for doing the work. It's powerful, and it's exciting. And, uh, and, and I mean, I think for me, you know, it's not an ego boost for me because uh, it's not me who needs the ego boost. I do that because I want the people who are in the closet about whether they can support Muslims comfortably to be able to see, hey, I'm not alone. There's a lot of people that feel the way I do that are stepping out of their shell. I need to step out of my shell. Um, you know, at, at, earlier you said I've written two books. I've actually written three books. And this third book oh, okay. came out last year called Talk to Me, Changing the Narrative on Race, Religion, and Education. One of the points that I make is that people are, by nature, uh, desirous to stay in their comfort zone, in their bubble. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to get them to come out of their bubble because they feel like they're going to be ridiculed, ostracized, made fun of, what have you. The key that I'm trying to convince people is that your comfort isn't in your comfort zone. Your comfort is stepping out of that bubble. That, 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 comfort, that what you think is your comfort zone is actually your prison. And you need to step out of your prison and realize that you can step across the racial divide. You can step across the gender divide. You can step across the religious divide and meet people where they are without compromising who you are as an individual as well. And that'll make you a stronger and better person. Um, and so that's why I try to do these clapback tweets because it allows that to happen. Right, and give you a better quality of life because you're spending less of that time being you know, controlled by anxiety and fear and hate. Absolutely. And actually mm -hmm. you know, opening up way more opportunities, way more you know, energy that can be directed at other positive things. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and one of those positive things we got to experience uh, in Omaha this past weekend uh, was the opening of this new tri-faith campus, uh, which is an area in Omaha that used to be um, owned by a Jewish country club where they made their own country club after the Omaha country clubs wouldn't let Jews join. So they made their yeah, own, right. got this huge chunk of land, and now they're building it into this tri-faith uh, campus where they built a synagogue now, and they just opened the mosque this weekend, and they've done a groundbreaking on uh, universalist... What, what is the denomination, the Christian uh, denomination? <clears throat> it's the United Church of Christ. Right. And um, so, yeah, uh, there's a Jewish temple there, and then it's... The mosque, I guess, um, it's part of the American uh, Muslim Institute. So very cool. It, it's yeah, absolutely. It's like a uh, non-denominational uh, mosque, basically, yeah. where they said anyone can come. It's uh, great, you know, and worship there. And it opened before Ramadan, but they actually had the uh, open house. Um, the public open house was this weekend, and you know, the parking lot immediately filled up. 
you know, we brought our families down there and I showed up early and it was completely full. And, you know, the whole time you're there, you know, I mean, they had to have shuttle buses running from the Jewish temple and the majority of the people were, you know, elderly white people just getting out of church, coming to this, um, I think with a genuine curiosity as well as a genuine support of neighbors in the community. And the the idea seems really amazing to me. Well, and Chuck, didn't this grow out of, I mean, the idea for this campus came from an event that happened on 9-11 when um, some of the the Jewish uh, citizens of Omaha went and basically made a human shield in front of um, one of the mosques mm. there in Omaha. Um, oh, really? Trying to, I, trying, yeah. to, trying to guard against reprisals um, from, you know, people who were understandably very scared and angry at that time, but lashing out in the wrong direction. And that was where the that was where the conversation started to, you know, like maybe the, the communities of faith in Omaha can come together and actually make a thing where these people are going to be interacting with each other all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean... And I didn't necessarily know that part. It wouldn't, you know, surprise me at all. But it just seems like this is the kind of thing that it shouldn't be as innovative as it is. I mean, it just makes perfect sense. We're all working in the same city. We're all, you know, going to the same schools. It's it's crazy that we can't all, you know, come together and be spiritually connected. So, right. you know, I, I really liked the the amount of education that was happening there. You know, there were so many volunteers there directing people around so that they could see. I mean, it literally feels like walking into a church. You know, there's right. a basketball court in there and, you know, you see kids running around and yeah, I mean, and people are having cookies and lemonade afterwards. <laughs> right. and, you know, Well, and, totally and Chuck, like you that. and I were talking a little bit about how you know, people who were visiting probably were going and expecting something very uh, foreign, um, yeah. exotic, maybe maybe a little bit scary to them. And you said that your experience there was it was like visiting, you know, First United Methodist Church or something, where it's 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 just a church. It's you know they've got their their sanctuary for worship and they have their gymnasium for the kids. You know the the youth groups doing things and like you said, serving whatever uh you know donuts and and lemonade and after the service and i mean it's just just like going to church you know well yeah i mean it was a very similar comfortable 100 percent experience you know it's that new building smell and everything i mean it was <laughs> right. just immaculate uh you know but you know they've got the main prayer room and worship area but it seriously felt like you've been there before uh you know oh this is a a familiar experience which i think is what a lot of those people needed to experience themselves because now it becomes personal to them and they can they can not only do they have that you know moment of realization but now they can feel comfortable talking within their communities that they go back to and the people that you know they may hear say something disparaging or offhand from, you know, something off the television or whatever. So I, I think that that was good. You know, and I mean, that, that, really, that really goes back to prophetic tradition. And what I mean by that is there's a very famous incident during the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when Christians from a place called Nadran came to meet with him and to see who he was. He made this claim of being this prophet foretold in the Bible, and they wanted to see what this guy was all about. 
they're with him in his mosque, these Christians, and he notices that they're uneasy, and he asks them, is something wrong? And they say, well, we need to find a church because it's our day of worship. We need to go offer our worship services. And the prophet said, uh, this mosque is a house of God, and you're most welcome to offer your worship services however you please, without hmm. hesitation or without any restriction in this mosque. And history attests that these Christians worshipped as Christians in that mosque at the request of the prophet himself. And so I, I think that's fantastic that this, this tri-faith center has opened up in Omaha because it really speaks to the interfaith harmony that is at the genesis of, uh, of Islam uh, 1,400 years prior. And, you know, right now they're, they're in the process. They've just done the groundbreaking for the UCC Excellent. church. But, um, I mean, I'm, I belong to the one about 50 miles away, 50 minutes away in Lincoln, Nebraska. But they've had, you know, a history of civil rights activism in the United Great. States, especially, you know, during, you know, uh, civil rights time, Martin Luther King marching, those kind of things, having, um, but also having members of different faiths come to speak. And this last year they had people come, uh, this scholar at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and, right. you know, they read quotes or read passages from the Quran that were dealing directly with, you know, themes from the Bible. And people, people were floored by it. I mean, again, this is something that some of us <laughs> are not <laughs> shocked at all. But... Right. Um, one of the things that my, my I belong to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we're, we're the nation's oldest Muslim organization. We're in over 200 nations worldwide, um, and we're united under an Islamic caliphate, believe it or not, uh, a spiritual caliphate. Who His Holiness resides in London, um, and one of the, the initiatives that we do in all of our mosques worldwide, we run about 17,000 mosques worldwide, is uh, something called a Religious Founders Day. We do it twice a year minimum in every mosque where we will pick some topic that's germane to all people, you know, how to combat poverty or how to combat domestic abuse or how to combat <laughs> alcoholism, something really, you know, social and, 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 and universal. Relevant. Yeah. And, and then we'll invite uh, a, a Buddhist scholar and a Sikh scholar and a Christian scholar and a Jewish scholar and a Muslim scholar. And the idea is that each speaker speaks for 10 minutes and presents the solution to this common problem from their religious tradition. And you have this very diverse, robust, dynamic audience. And then there's a Q&A afterwards. And then, of course, we have dinner afterwards. And what ends up happening every single time is people realize, like, wait a minute. We're all saying literally the exact same thing. <laughs> right. right. Yep. We may have a little Absolutely. bit of a different way of saying it. Uh, but uh, you call him Jehovah. I call him Allah. But it's effectively the same teaching. And it's such a powerful way to break down bridges. Uh, break down walls and build bridges of understanding that um, it, it's become to a point where we can't even have it at the mosque or a church anymore. We need rent, to rent out like a mega hall to have it because so many people show up. So wow, nice. uh, that, that's exciting to hear that that kind of a tradition is continuing in, in Omaha. And, and I hope you guys continue to stay a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shall we take a take a little break there and, and come back oh, yeah. with uh, <laughs> a couple more of these topics? Yeah, it sounds good, man. Definitely. A lot of people are Islamophobic, which doesn't make sense on paper because, you know, the God in Islam is the same God that was revealed to Abraham in Judaism, Christianity, same guy. But people are scared. Why? Because anytime they watch movies and TV shows and a character's Arabic or they're praying or something like that, that scary ass music from Homeland is underneath it. It is terrible. <laughs> It's okay. 
hey, you want to end Islamophobia? Honestly, just change that music. Like, if the music was different, if it was just like, people would be like, man, Islam is one whimsical religion, isn't it? So, yeah, the Washington Post has been on a streak of amazing uh, articles on this theme here. So, in addition to your article on July 1st, they had the story of a Muslim doctor who moved to Dawson, Minnesota to be basically a rural doctor, one of only three doctors in town. And kind of the journey that he went through, he as Trump was elected, and then he saw that the city that how they voted was overwhelmingly for Trump, even though he felt like he was an open and welcoming part of this community. So, Well, and that the community had been very open and welcoming to him and his family as well. So it seemed. <laughs> right, so it seemed. You know, he had then embarked on this kind of journey of people were then asking him to come speak in front of, um, you know, at a library and things to help people understand Islam. And he kind of wrestled with it because... Um, of what we were talking about earlier, where he's feeling like, why is it my responsibility? Like, I didn't do anything wrong, but now somehow I'm responsible for, you know, educating everyone in my town uh, that, you know, I'm not someone that should be hated and feared. Like, why should I have to do that? The struggle, as we talked about, to patiently educate people, even though many people, it seems like, don't even want to be educated. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I empathize with that. I mean, you're right. You know, no, nobody wants to be the martyr mm-hmm. uh, that says, you know, mm-hmm. let me represent uh, 1.6 billion people. Right? right. Or, you know, oh, you're black. Uh, tell me about slavery. It's like, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Read a book. You know, I'm not here to, <laughs> right. your, you know, slavery Google ended Rome. if you didn't notice. Right. <laughs> I'm not here to, to get your beckoning. Right. Um, so I, I, I get that. I also get that we're in a unique time right now. One of my mentors growing up once said that the greatest intellectual tragedy of 9-11, 300 million Americans got their first introduction to Islam when two buildings fell down. When you're trying to dig out of that kind of a hole, uh, no pun intended, you've got a long way to go. So I think on one hand, you, you, you can be justified in saying, hey, I'm not accountable to those terrorists, and you can be completely right in that. On the other hand, you know, there, there's, in, in Islam, there's three levels of goodness, and the lowest level of goodness is justice. That's the bare minimum that every Muslim must uphold in all aspects of life. Just No matter how somebody treats you, no matter how much somebody abuses you, you must uphold absolute justice as the bare minimum. The next level is kindness, where you know even if somebody mistreats you or is rude to you, you're still kind to them. And then the highest level is, is called is kinship, where even if somebody is abusive and persecutes you, you still treat them as if they're your your own children, your, your kith and kin, right? The, the famous and beautiful line from Jesus Christ, pray for those who persecute you, you know, you know, when he's on the cross, he says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so that yeah. concept is in Islam as well. And so from that standpoint, our approach, at, at least within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is that we will stand ready to provide that education and training to anyone who wants it. And to that end, we've launched the, the True Islam education campaign at trueislam.com where we've supplemented that with coffee, cake, and true Islam. You, you can look under the events tab, and we have hundreds of meetups around the country where we will buy you coffee and cake just for the chance to talk to you. I mean, <laughs> that, that, you know, we, we want that dialogue. And, and what we found is we are having people who are hardcore Trump supporters, hardcore Clinton supporters come together and have a dialogue for once uh, about Islam and clarify their, their misunderstandings, clarify 
their misconceptions. Everything from the most mundane to uh, do you worship God to the most quote-unquote controversial, you know, should gays be killed? Uh, no, they shouldn't. Uh, but, uh, but those are questions people have. We need to be able to answer those questions. So, you know, I get what that doctor's saying. I get the frustration uh, of that. But, but my, my philosophy, and this is what the Khalifa, the, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has, has advised us and directed us, is even if you have to give up your own comfort and your own rights for the, the mental safety and security of your neighbors, be ready to do that. Um, the only place you should draw the line is when you have to give up your religion. Don't give up your religion. But right. if you have to take on some discomfort or some uh, nuisance, if you want to even call it that, then do so if it means building bridges of, of dialogue and understanding because that's the prophetic model. That's the example of Prophet Muhammad and Prophet Jesus and all these other great saints and prophets of history. And, and that's what we need to aspire ourselves to. I'll, I'll close this diatribe with one final example. <laughs> of uh, General Salahuddin, Saladin as he's known in the West, um, who after liber liberating Jerusalem uh, allowed Christians to live there in peace. And whereas when King, Lion, uh, King Richard Lionhearted had, had taken Jerusalem, he had you know, exiled Muslims and, and killed Jews. And somebody said to General Salahuddin that um, when we were ousted, you know, when we lost Jerusalem, we were ousted and we were you know, persecuted and tortured we should do the same to, to these people, what they did to us. That's justice. And Salahuddin responded that these people are not our teachers. They're not who we aspire to. We aspire to a far greater example of Prophet Muhammad, of Jesus Christ. That, that is what we aspire to. And so that's my message to my fellow Americans. That, that that's, what, 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 that's my jihad right there. And, and I think that's a jihad that every person uh, should, should strive and, and struggle towards because that, that's how we're going to get peace. Not, not by... Not by not talking to one another. Um, it's going to be by right. talking to one another, even when it's uncomfortable. Well, and that was what that was what really struck me about this article because um, you know he's this this doctor is feeling suddenly sort of like low key threatened in his community. Friends that used to come by aren't coming by anymore. Um, the kids aren't playing with his kids like they they were before. And then he gets approached to give a lecture. And he gives a lecture, and it goes okay, but then he gets approached to give another lecture in a neighboring town, and that doesn't go so well. But then he gets approached to give another lecture in another neighboring town, and at that point, he's feeling totally burned out. Um, the, you know, the, the third community isn't, it's deep Trump country, and, you know, a neighbor offers to let him wear his, uh, his bulletproof vest when he goes and they, they hire security and everything. And, um, and you can see in this article that he's really struggling with this idea of, you know, why, why would I do this? You know, my, my brother in Florida got death threats and he's just going to move to Canada. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, but he does end up giving this speech and he, he goes out to this, this other community and, he goes off script at one point and says, like, look at what your own religion teaches. You know, this this hypocrisy, this violence, this uh, rejection of the other. You know, this isn't what Jesus Christ would have wanted from you. Absolutely. And, and he ends up with a group full of people who, you get the sense that they were maybe a little bit cowed, but they also were curious at yeah. that point. Well, I mean, I, I fundamentally believe that human beings are good. 
regardless of their faith or no faith. Uh, I, I, I was invited to speak at a church once in, uh, in, a, in southern Ohio, a very red country. Uh, the pastor's a black guy, a good friend of mine, Pastor Leo Cunningham. And he goes, look, my, my, if you come to my city and ask for the black part of town, they're going to point to my house because I'm basically it. And, right. uh, and, and I went out there and, you know, tragically, his congregation refused to show up. They said, we're not going to, we don't want to hear a Muslim speak. Um, we want nothing to do with it. Now, Pastor Leo, being the resourceful man that he is, he, he, he called a few of his colleagues and a, another pastor graciously invited me. I went there. It was an extremely tense environment. But afterwards, uh, they embraced me as, as a brother, uh, as Christians, and I'm a Muslim. One young man who was about my age came up to me and pulled me off to the side and said, you know, I, I have to tell you, I didn't want to come. I only came because my pastor made me. And I joined the military after 9-11 because I wanted to kill as many Muslims as I possibly could. This was his exact phrase. I wanted to kill as many Muslims as I possibly could. Nice introduction. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Exactly, right? Yeah, I mean, and, uh, and he said, but I just realized now, you know, 14 years later, 13 years later, whatever that was, that I have never met a Muslim in my entire life. And I hated something that uh, doesn't exist. And, and so that's what I, you know, I said it off arrow to you guys that, that's where someone like Rosa Parks was such a huge impact on society because you could hate black people, but you saw this sweet, intelligent woman named Rosa Parks, and suddenly you couldn't hate Rosa Parks, and it made a big difference. And so, so that's where dialogue is so crucial because you can hate that big, bad, bearded, turbaned, you know, dark-skinned Muslim that you see on TV as a caricature, but then you see a Muslim you know, holding his 18-month-old baby girl and, and tickling her, and she's giggling her head off and drooling, and suddenly you're like, "Wait a minute, that's that's a Muslim. That's that's a human being. That's my neighbor. I can't I can't hate that." Yeah, I think a great example of this is um, on the day after Trump was inaugurated, Aziz Ansari hosted SNL, and his opening monologue was fantastic. And he basically talked about how people are so frightened of Muslims because the only Muslims they ever meet or hear about are just when horrible things happen on the news. And they never just cut to, you know, four Muslim guys eating nachos at a restaurant, <laughs> yeah. like so. just hanging out, being normal. Aziz's show has touched on, you know, his journey from Islam. Um, another recent movie is the Kumail Nanjiani uh, movie that's out right the now. Big sick. Uh, the Big Six. But sure. I guess both of them kind of talk about how they are distancing themselves from Islam. Yeah. Uh, but yet those are like two of the most prominent Muslim pieces of, of work in pop culture right now. Um, you know, do you think that that's related, that they're explicitly talking about their journey to becoming less religious? Um, I think he also has in the past talked about like there needs to be like a Muslim version of like a sitcom where it's just a normal family who just happens to be like Muslim. a Cosby show. Maybe bad example. Oh, yeah. Not Sorry. exactly Cosby right. anymore, but um, right. Um, you know, I so yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, they've done a lot of good things for normalizing Asians, for example, right? Uh, but the fact that it's at the expense of moving away from Islam, it basically gives a message that they're normal because they're not Muslim or they because they've distanced themselves from Muslims. You know, Mahershala Ali is a good friend of mine. And uh, I, I love the fact that he maintains uh, his identity as a Muslim, as a, as a, a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, and he means he, he's proud of his work and you've seen his work is phenomenal, right? Um, but you know, you talk to the guy and he's the most humble down to earth, genuine guy you ever met in your entire life. 
uh, and and it's it's amazing. And so for him, he's not about to compromise his faith as a, as a Muslim. He's not about to compromise his identity as a black man, um, and and he's not about to to take uh, a, a role that is beneath him, is beneath his dignity. And I, and I think that's the example that I want to see in the pop culture scene, right? I mean, you know, I grew up in the '90s, and so we had Hakeem Olajuwon. Which right. you know we we adored him right because he yeah. was he was fasting while playing a basketball game and we we're like oh man this guy mm-hmm. is just a beast this is amazing, <laughs> um, yep. but then you have you know Muhammad Ali for example who was a proud black Muslim and the company that runs a social media account has decided that we're not going to mention his faith at all, uh, which is a complete disgrace right uh, I mean complete right. disgrace. So it's a struggle and there's a lot of work to do. And, and I think that's why, you know, kind of looping back to where this conversation started with Linda Sarsour and this word jihad, you know, that's why I think it's so important to me to be unapologetic about my identity as a Muslim, as, as a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as somebody who is proud to say that I wage this jihad of the pen for education, for dialogue, for peace. Uh, and, and I'm not going to back down on that. And if somebody wants to try to get me in a gotcha question, then I'm going to do a clap back that'll get 100,000 retweets and they'll regret, they'll regret it, you know? Because yep. um, yep. that, that, that's the only jihad I know the, of the pen and of right. education. Well, Qasim, and I'm, I'm curious too, we've, we've spoken quite a bit about um, this, this jihad of the pen, jihad of the pen, as you phrase it, um, and I think it's terrific, and that's um, bringing people who are opposed to you from like a non-Muslim perspective. Uh, but again, I follow your Twitter and I see that you also get um, a bit of pushback from people who think that your your faith, your your Islam doesn't necessarily represent Islam globally. And I wonder if you could uh, speak to that also. I mean, how do you how do you reach out to folks who say, you know, He's, I, I don't know, I, I, I can't quote a tweet, but he's selling out or he has, um, you know, he's, he's going against like the true faith here. Yeah, I get that all the time. I got, I got one email today that I tweeted out about that too. And so what I tell these people is, look, what I'm presenting as Islam is not theory. It's not opinion. It's not some idea I concocted in the shower and said, hey, this might be a good idea. Let me tweet this out. Showers are her dad jokes. That's what I think about my dad jokes. Not, not a um, <laughs> right. But what I'm presenting, I tell, I tell these critics, is a proven model of Islam. You know, the, the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been around for 130 years. And we were founded by a man named Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, who we believe is this awaited Messiah, the second coming of Jesus. This reformer, this, this messianic figure who re- revived Islam as a religion that is dedicated to service of humanity and, 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 and unity of God. We've been around for 130 years. We've faced vehement, brutal persecution in Muslim-majority nations. I mean, my, I had a cousin who was lynched, literally lynched. I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate. He was, you know, neck, uh, was snapped by him being dragged behind a horse carriage. I had another cousin who was tortured for a week uh, and nearly, nearly killed. We have friends who are in prison right now. Um, so I, I get it, you know, and... And, and, and I see this persecution, I see this violence. You know, ISIS has kidnapped several members of our community. The Taliban has murdered, mass murdered several members of our community. Um, but despite that, in 130 years, in 200 nations, tens of millions of members, we've never had a single act of terrorism. One. Instead, 
We have built nearly a thousand schools providing free education to people of all faiths, kids, children of all faiths. We've built hundreds of hospitals giving free health care to people of all faiths and backgrounds, eye clinics, water wells, uh, aid to Gaza, to Syria, you name it. My challenge to these people is if you think that all this is by accident or all this is by a fluke of nature, then show me a better proven model of Islam out there. Show me a better example of a community that's been around for 130 years, that's been brutally persecuted, that's been censored at every front. All of our literature, by the way, is banned and censored in these draconian Muslim-majority regimes like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. But despite that, we continue to advance and grow in peace uh, and, and prosperity without raising a single violent weapon. Our weapon is the pen, the jihad of the pen. Sure. So, this, this, so to, to wrap up this long answer, to, to concisely answer your question, when those critics come at me, my answer is prove it. I've proven it with a 130-year model, a demonstrable model. Give me a better model. And if you can't, if you can't put up... Shut up. Shut up. Simple <laughs> as that. I, I think that's tremendous. And thank you for that response. And I, I know that, you know, when this episode goes live, it's probably just going to invite more of that kind of vitriol in your direction. But, you know, I would I would say no. to those people, too, <laughs> that, you know, the, you know, there's a... There's a, this this baseline understanding of Islam um, back when it when it first started as being this paragon of education and scientific development and human rights and um, it seems to me uh, the way you describe it it seems to me like that's exemplary of what people want Islam to be and you know if we can it, you know if Absolutely. our little show Absolutely. can help spread that message in any way i think we're happy to do that and i i mean i want to thank you guys for the platform because that's the, that's the most crucial thing here to have this platform to have exposure but i want to emphasize something that everything that i've said is not some new age 21st century you know sugar-coated reformed right. islam this is the islam prophet muhammad taught 1400 years ago that has been lost under the rust of failed muslim leadership under western interventionism I mean, for God's sake, the very first word of the Quran ever revealed was Ikra, which means read, recite, convey. I mean, this is literally the essence of Islam, that for the love of God, read a book. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the message that we're trying to revive here uh, today. And, and, and frankly, we got a long way to go, but uh, we are picking up crazy steam every single day and right, uh, just right. try to stop us if you can i couldn't think of a better place to wrap up this amazing discussion that i was gonna say you. you know we've this usually we try to go out on a high note but i feel like in a lot of ways this entire episode was a high note you know <laughs> the education that i appreciate this guys this is, uh, this is what i live for this is the kind of dialogue that i think isn't happening enough and so every time i see people who are out there pushing out this positive vibes i'm privileged to be a part of it likewise yeah, definitely. So, you know, I know we mentioned your uh, Twitter handle before, but, you know, would you like to mention it again here? Maybe shout out anything you'd like our audience to pay attention to? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Muslim IQ. I'm on Facebook at author Qasim Rashid. Um, um, but I want you guys to sign up as a Muslim ally at the trueislam.com education campaign. And all that means is that 
you stand with Muslims against Islamophobia, against bigotry, um, and that um, you'll come visit us when they put us in camps. Oh, absolutely. That was a joke, by the way, but yeah. <laughs> was it? <laughs> but maybe not. Oh, man, I was like right down, like, what was that website I need to go to again? <laughs> but, no way, dude. But, but definitely it check out Islam.com, sign up as a Muslim ally, and, and arm yourself yeah. with this education so when you hear that racist uncle say all Muslims are terrorists, you can shut them down with uh, some knowledge and, and leave them stunned. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of resources out there for people who are willing to learn with an open mind. And I think that's a beautiful thing, that's no cool. matter what background awesome. you come from. 100%. In addition to that, audience, you know you can also follow us at liquid underscore flannel. And you can follow us individually. You can find me at Shaggy2Trope. Brendan, where can they find you? At Brendan Williams with one L. And Matt, where are you at? I'm at Matt the Great with a W. And you've been listening to Liquid Flannel. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Cosm. Yes, thank yeah, you so man. much for your time. That's this has been amazing. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. God bless. Educational and amazing. That's right. The double whammy. <laughs>